Fort Laramie might have reached its zenith in 1860 had not the citizens of the Colorado Territory been so niggardly with their hard-earned gold. The superintendent of the Western Union and Missouri Telegraph Company, Edward Creighton, made the territorial offer similar to that advanced by the stage men. He proposed that if the populace would invest $20,000 to subsidize the construction of the main line, he would route it through Denver. When the measure failed to muster the necessary public support, Creighton elected to build the telegraph line along the familiar Oregon-California road. At that time, Postmaster General Holt had not yet decided to reroute the transcontinental mail via the South Platte River and Bridger's Pass. The Army probably influenced Creighton's decision by reminding him that a line through Denver would be extremely vulnerable because there were no military posts along the more southerly route between Forts Kearney and Bridger, a distance of some 600 miles. Furthermore, the nearest garrison to Denver, Fort Laramie, would be circumvented by more than 150 miles and thereby deprived of vital telegraphic communication. The Western Union construction crew, consequently, strung wire through Fort Laramie during late summer 1861 to complete the Army's eastern connection with the states, and on October 24, the two lines were joined at Salt Lake City. The Pony Express subsequently succumbed to a quick death having lost as much as half a million dollars during its meteoric life. Yet, true to Russell's prediction, it had proved the feasibility of year-round travel over the central route. The previous spring, a pony rider from the east had arrived at Fort Laramie, bringing news of the state of war existing with the Southern Confederacy. For the garrison at Fort Laramie, like others all across the frontier, the issue of secession had been a topic of heated debate for months, causing the officer corps, composed of both Northerners and Southerners, to divide into Unionist and Secessionist camps. The two factions eyed each other suspiciously, often boasting about what they would do were war to break out. With the April firing on Fort Sumter, South Carolina, individuals hailing from the South were suddenly faced with backing their words by actions. For most, it was a very personal choice between upholding the oath they had made as officers in the United States Army and loyalty to the political positions taken by their respective native states. As elsewhere in the nation, political passions ran high at Fort Laramie in the wake of that momentous news. Although the post commander, Captain John McNabb, was a Vermonter, he had publicly expressed his pro-secessionist sentiments at the sutler's store and to other officers of the garrison. When Sutler Seth Ward's manager, William G. Bullock, dared to proclaim his intention to hoist the secession flag at the post, McNabb looked on without taking action. However, the enlisted men serving at the post were predominantly northern-born Americans, or European immigrants, lacking regional biases, and all were Army regulars duty-bound to defend the United States. Offended by Bullock's plan, the troops threatened to hang him from the flagstaff if he attempted to raise the stars and bars. Bullock prudently reconsidered. That Captain McNabb conspired against the federal government was revealed when he granted furloughs to three subordinate officers, all of whom had resigned their commissions and were awaiting appointments in the Confederate service. McNabb deepened his culpability by providing the traitors with arms and falsifying the ordnance records concerning the disposition of the weapons. Adjutant General of the Army Lorenzo Thomas was alarmed to learn that not only was McNabb's very weak and ineffective leadership creating an atmosphere of disorder 
and lack of discipline at Fort Laramie, but that an avowed Confederate sympathizer was in control of that important Western post. 